0: I'm Timothy Putnam, and I'll be your host for the next hour. Each week we gather right here to explore the foundations of our faith, to look at the implications of our faith on our daily lives, so that together we can prepare to live outside the walls. Well, did you see it on the news? Yesterday uh, was the National March for Life in Washington, D.C., Hundreds of thousands of people gathered. It never gets airtime. Uh, it just doesn't. Uh, of course, all throughout the nation, uh, we marked the anniversary, uh, the sad and, and uh, really oppressive anniversary of the Supreme Court's passage of Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton, which made abortion on demand legal all across the United States. Uh, and so this is uh, an anniversary that we will mark uh, most likely every year in our conversations, to look not so much toward the past but toward the future. How do we move forward from here? Uh, and not so much even at the political ramifications, although we'll delve into that a little bit today, uh, but at uh, our action as Christians in this world. How can we proclaim uh, the, the sanctity of human life in a consistent manner in such a way that it will make a difference in our surrounding culture? And so today, later in the show, we're going to be talking with Charlie Camosi, who is an associate professor of uh, theological and social ethics at Fordham University with a specialization in bioethics. Uh, He's also a board member on Democrats for Life, uh, which is, as you probably know, if you know anything about politics, is a very rare thing. So we're going to talk with him about his perspective, and it's one that I think uh, will be informative to all of us Uh, now. As always, we've got plenty of time to get there. We're going to spend most of the show talking with him, but we're going to start our time together in prayer, in a reading from Scripture, and a reading from church history. So today, let us celebrate the kindness and wisdom of Christ. He offers his love and understanding to all men and women, especially to the suffering. Let us earnestly pray to him. Perfect us in love, Lord. Today, we recall your resurrection and we long for the benefits of your redemption. Grant that we may bear witness to you today, Lord, and offer an acceptable gift to the Father through you. Enable us to see your image in all mankind and to serve you in them. Lord Jesus, you are the true vine and we are the branches. Allow us to remain in you, to bear much fruit and to give glory to the Father. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, we praise you with our lips, and with our lives and hearts. Our very existence is a gift from you. To you we offer all that we have and all that we are. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Today's first reading comes from Second Samuel, chapter 1. David returned from his defeat of the Amalekites and spent two days in Ziklag, On the third day, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Going to David, he fell to the ground in homage. David asked him, Where do you come from? He replied, I have escaped from the camp of the children of Israel. Tell me what happened, David bade him. He answered that many of the soldiers had fled the battle, and that many of them had fallen and were dead. Among them, Saul and his son Jonathan. David seized his garments and rent them, and all the men who were with him did likewise. They mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the soldiers of the Lord of the clans of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Alas, the glory of Israel, Saul, slain upon your heights! How can the warriors have fallen? Saul and Jonathan, beloved and cherished, separated neither in life nor in death, swifter than eagles, stronger than lions. Women of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and in finery, who decked your attire with ornaments of gold. How can the warriors have fallen in the thick of battle, slain upon your heights? I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. Most dear have you been to me. Most precious, have I held love for you than love for women. How can the warriors have fallen? The weapons of war have perished. That reading comes from the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 1. Today's Responsorial Psalm comes from Psalm 80. Let us see your face, Lord, and we shall be saved. O shepherd of Israel, hearken. O guide of the flock of Joseph, From your throne upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Rouse your power and come to save us. Let us see your face, Lord, and we shall be saved. O Lord of hosts, how long will you burn with anger while your people pray? You have fed them with a bread of tears and given them tears to drink in ample measure. You have left us to be fought over by our neighbors, and our enemies mock us. Let us see your face, Lord, and we shall be saved. Today's Gospel reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. Jesus came with his disciples into the house. Again the crowd gathered, making it impossible for them to eat. When his relatives heard of this, they set out to seize him, for they said, He is out of his mind. That reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. Today's reading from Church History comes from the Treatise on Spiritual Perfection by Dioticus of Photus. No one who is in love with himself is capable of loving God. The man who loves God is the one who mortifies his self-love for the sake of the immeasurable blessings of divine love. Such a man never seeks his own glory, but only the glory of God. If a person loves himself, he seeks his own glory, but the man who loves God loves the glory of his Creator. Anyone alive to the love of God can be recognized from the way he constantly strives to glorify Him by fulfilling all His commandments and by delighting in his own abasement. Because of His great majesty... It is fitting that God should receive glory, but if he hopes to win God's favor, it becomes man to be humble. If we possess this love for God, we too will rejoice in his glory, as St. John the Baptist did, and we shall never stop repeating His fame must increase, but mine must diminish. I know a man who, though lamenting his failure to love God as much as he desires, yet loves him so much that his soul burns with ceaseless longing for God to be glorified and for his own complete effacement. This man has no feeling of self-importance, even when he receives praise. So deep is his desire to humble himself that he never even thinks of his own dignity. He fulfills his priestly duty by celebrating the liturgy, but his intense love for God is an abyss that swallows up all consciousness of his high office. His humility makes him oblivious of any honor it might bring him, so that in his own estimation, he is never anything but a useless servant. Because of his desire for self-abasement, he regards himself as though degraded from his office. His example is one that we ourselves should follow by fleeing from all honor and glory for the sake of the immeasurable blessings of God's love. For he has loved us so much anyone who loves God in the depths of his heart has already been loved by God in fact the measure of a man's love for God depends upon how deeply aware he is of God's love for him when this awareness is keen it makes whoever possesses it long to be enlightened by the divine light and this longing is so intense that it seems to penetrate to his very bones He loses all consciousness of himself and is entirely transformed by the love of God. Such a man lives in this life, and at the same time does not live in it, for although he still inhabits his body, he is constantly leaving it in spirit because of the love that draws him toward God. Once the love of God has released him from self-love, the flame of divine love never ceases to burn in his heart and he remains united to God by an irresistible longing. As the Apostle says, If we are taken out of ourselves, it is for the love of God. If we are brought back to our senses, it is for your sake. That reading comes from the Treatise on Spiritual Perfection by a Dioticus of photis These may seem to be maybe odd readings, <laughs> as we are in the midst of... Uh, the beginning of ordinary time, the the midst of recognizing and marking the anniversary of Roe versus Wade. But I think really they're quite appropriate for us, specifically our gospel and our reading from church history. Uh, This concept of the people looking at Christ, even his own relatives, looking at Jesus and saying, you're nuts. You're out of your mind. And we look at our society today and they think that We are out of our mind for upholding the sanctity of all life, even nascent life, life uh, very early on in the womb from the moment of conception to natural death, to to value someone just by virtue of them being human, right? We're not valuing them because of their accomplishments. We're not valuing them because of what they have to offer us. It doesn't matter whether that person is wanted or not, simply because that person is, is a person made in the image of God, we have value for them. Our society says that if a person is a burden, then whether that be because of poverty or whether that be because of age, we can do uh, things like euthanasia that will uh, allow society's burden to be lifted. And yet we look at these things and say, no, that person is a person of invaluable worth, incomparable worth simply because they are made in the image of God. And so we seem to be out of our minds. Uh, we, we value these things not because of anything we can gain from it, but, but simply because God made that person in his image. God cared for that person, and so we appear to be out of our minds. Christ was out of his mind because he cared for the people more than he cared for even eating himself, right? Even, even his own ability to take care of himself. And here we have that beautiful reading on Christian perfection, which at the very end of it, he alludes to a passage out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul talks about we are ministers of reconciliation, that it's our desire, it's our job as Christians uh, to make known the reconciliation made possible by Jesus Christ, that we can be reconciled to God. And he says there, he says, if we are beside ourselves, if we're out of our mind, it is for God. But if we're in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So what does that look like to live for him who has died and was raised for our sake? What does it look like to not look to our own interests, but to the interests and the will of God? What does it look like to submit to him, even on these issues that are politically uh, unpopular, that specifically the pragmatics are uh, politically unpopular. When we return, we're going to talk with Charlie Camosi, who's an associate professor of theological and social ethics at Fordham University with an emphasis in bioethics. And we're going to look at the last 40 years and look at a different way forward. What do we need to do uh, to now make a difference as we move forward forward? Uh, to see an end to abortion it's going to be a very interesting discussion lots of things that maybe you haven't heard before uh, i want you to engage with it come on over to facebook.com step outside the walls on twitter the handles at outside the walls and join the conversation let me know what you think lots to talk about we'll be right back after this break you're listening to outside the walls with timothy putnam Welcome back to Outside the Walls. I'm your host Timothy Putnam. Thanks for sticking through the break. Oh, we have a great show for you today. We're talking about the, the increasing polarization in our uh, narrative, in our in our discourse in this nation, and specifically today we're talking about it around the the subject of abortion, uh, because of, as you know, we've just now passed. The anniversary, the uh, that we mark each year of the passage of Roe versus Wade in the Supreme Court and Doe versus Bolton on that same day. We're speaking today with Charlie Camosi, who is an associate professor of theological and social ethics at Fordham University with a specialization in bioethics. And abortion is a topic that you speak on quite frequently, uh, on both in newspaper articles and books and uh I'm, I'm assuming speeches and, and the like as well. So, Charlie, thanks for being on the show today.
1: My pleasure, Timothy.
0: I know you, you had a lot going on this week, uh, having been a part of the March for Life. And so we certainly do appreciate the time that you have given us today. So let's start with this uh, increasing polarization. And, you know, we can blame it on any number of things, whether it be the 24-hour cable news cycle that continues to, uh, to keep everyone riled up. I mean, that's their job is to, to get you engaged and they do it nonstop. So maybe it's that, maybe it's the increasing proliferation of social media where everyone's opinion uh, is important and everyone feels that their own opinion needs to be proclaimed maybe a little bit louder than normal. Uh, whatever the reason is, we're seeing this increasing uh, polarization of discourse and really, a loss of being able to find common ground. So, in your book, uh, Beyond the Abortion Wars, you talked about the middle—the people who maybe are on the other side uh, of the the discussion. Maybe they have a different opinion than I do on uh, the pro-life issue versus pro-choice or anti-abortion, pro—you know, whatever the language people want to use. Uh, we get so caught up in those labels that we draw our battle lines and never find the way to the middle. So talk a little bit about that premise of your book of getting beyond the abortion wars and maybe give us a primer of how to find common ground with someone who on the face of it, we would disagree with.
1: Well, even a moderate sort of look at the complexity of abortion shows that the idea that there are two sides fighting a war against each other. So that's again on cable news and in social media and, Maybe even at some rallies, the the image that's given us just isn't where American people are. Let me give you just one example of many I could give you. If you talk about abortion before 12 weeks, 61% of Americans say that should be legal. If you talk about abortion after 12 weeks, 73% of Americans say it should be illegal. So, and we don't even, we don't even, we can't even get a vote on a 20 week ban, much less a 12 week ban. But yet we imagine ourselves in this sort of us versus them fight to the death between choice and life, the culture of death versus those who love the babies, those who support women versus the misogynist Right. And that's just not where we are.
0: Right. So how do we get from this place where everything we're being fed, you're saying, you know, we we have this great agreement on certain points, uh, for instance, abortion after 12 weeks, uh, whereas, of course, we in America do have some of the most liberal laws, that, that whole bastion of what we consider liberal Europe, even they have more conservative abortion laws than we do. Uh, and so... How do we get to a place where we have that agreement, that 70 some percent, and yet we can't get the vote to come up for a 20 week ban?
1: Well, I think as much as possible, uh, those of us who want to see babies protected and their mothers supported need to get ourselves out of this uh, out of this war that's being fought, at least on social media on cable news and uh, in some of our more high high level political fights that we're now seeing unfold in the 2016 election this is we this is not a republican issue it's it's not a democrat issue there's plenty of common ground to be found especially if we're willing to what I what I like to call the hashtag choose both approach if we're willing to say that this is not about being anti-woman that we want in fact to support women along with supporting babies, we can reframe the narrative as sort of like against this idea that, oh, yeah, you know, you're either for women or against women or you're pro-baby or against baby, against a baby. And and just one quick example of that, I'm on the board of Democrats for Life. We proposed um, trying to connect the 20-week ban, the Pain Capable Act, with uh, paid family leave uh, for women, something that is also most of the world has that we don't have. Right. And uh, it basically went nowhere because our, our whole culture, political culture anyway, is, is still seen it as this us versus them mentality.
0: So we who are not in the political elite, you know, how do we go about uh, beginning to influence our legislators uh, without just, you know, getting involved with uh, – uh, petitions and change.org and everything else that where you know what i like to call hashtag slacktivism where <laughs> i i put it on change.org i did my part right what are some practical steps that that we can do to begin to start elevating this conversation and maybe help see a way forward
1: well first of all you can tell your legislate uh, legislators that you don't uh see this as a partisan issue that you want them to work with the other side in trying to find a compromise that they that they ought not to use this issue as we see again and again as merely a wedge issue to raise money and get votes around election time you actually want to see movement you actually want to see babies and women protected and if that's the case then they you should you should ask them to support the kinds of initiatives that actually would move the needle that wouldn't continue to perpetuate this endless war that forty years of war have produced virtually nothing for either side. Mm-hmm. And 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 it would be the kind of thing that would say, well where where can we find common ground? Can we find a twenty a week ban if we support women along with that? Can we can we do other things to support women? I for instance, childcare is hopelessly expensive for many women, single women in difficult situations. Can we give women some help with that? So and these are all things that are very, very popular if you get beyond the narrative that this is a liberal versus conservative issue.
0: <clears throat> so let's go back to that liberal versus conservative for a moment, because uh, I, I know some people who approach this issue uh, and they don't want to give any ground. Right. They, they say, you know, and as an ethicist, I think you would agree that abortion is uh, is a moral uh, problem. It's a it's a it, tricky issue at any stage for any reason. And so you've got these people who are very uh, faithful Catholics who very much have a goal in mind, and that's to see the end of abortion. And and so how do you bring them to a place where you can say, listen, we want, we, we want the same thing. We want to see the end of abortion, but we do need to see progress. Uh, so let's start with common ground. Uh, how would you talk to someone who may be, uh, inclined to being on that far side and draw them toward a conversation with the middle, not necessarily even changing their opinions, but to draw them towards the conversation?
1: Well, first of all, I would say, I want what you want. I want equal protection of the law for our prenatal children tomorrow, if we could get it mm-hmm. now. So what we're talking about is the best way to get to that point. Right. We've had four, we've had 40 years, we've had 40 years of fighting this us-versus-them, life-versus-choice, Republican-versus-Democrat battle. And what has it got us on a federal level? It's got us basically one thing, as far as I can tell, a partial-birth abortion ban, which is basically saying you can't commit infanticide. Right. So in 40 years, in forty years, we've got the anti-infanticide bill and nothing else. And so I I would say let's think creatively about how we can move the needle. What, what are the ways we can actually move forward? do get equal protection of the law for all of our prenatal children it seems so obvious to me that the only way to do that is to talk about doing that in small steps that reaches out to the other side that says yes I know you are uncomfortable with late-term abortion and not uncomfortable with early-term abortion let's work on a package deal where we could get your support for the pain-capable act for instance we won't have just zero zero votes from Democrats on that issue Republicans didn't even work to get any Democratic votes they didn't say hey here's something we'll give you in in Return for this. They just knowing the knowing that the uh, the legislation would fail. They just put it out there to be voted out anyway to use as a as a a wedge issue. That that sort of thing isn't what pro-lifers can accept anymore. We can't accept uh, meaningless votes uh, for wedge issues in in election cycles. We have to demand more from people.
0: You know, one of the guests we've had on here previously is former Oklahoma Representative Rebecca Hamilton. She's also a blogger on the Pathos Network. And as a former legislator, one of the things that she's very passionate about is waking people up to the fact that a lot of the legislation that goes on is merely uh, for show. It's merely to let people know, oh, look, we're trying to do something. And this one that you brought up here with the Pain Capable Act, I think, is just a very clear picture of that, where um, they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt there was no way it was going to get passed but, and nor did they really try to get it passed other than to say, Hey, look, we put up this bill. It looks great. And Oh, I guess we couldn't do anything about it. I guess we'll have to raise more money so that we can do it all again next year. So how do we begin to tell our legislators, uh, no, this doesn't work anymore.
1: Well, this is going to be an unpopular position, maybe with some of your listeners, Okay, but I think, I, I think we need to pro-lifers need to abandon our sort of unthinking, supportive Republican Party. I, mm-hmm. I think they, they take us too much for granted. They use us. I mean, well, who who does it benefit to have a meaningless vote on the 20-week abortion ban? It benefits Republicans, right? They get to raise money now. They get to say, we're the pro-life party and we're being frustrated by the Democrats. So vote for us, give us more money. And we'll, we promise, promise, promise to do what you want, except for 40 years that really hasn't worked out too well for us.
0: Yeah, including times where the Republican Party's had all three branches of government.
1: Yeah, exactly. So so multiple times we've actually had complete control and, and got virtually nothing. And even Supreme Court justice appointments have not been that great. So Anthony Kennedy, who is now the one we're hoping will be the swing vote for us next time. Actually, there will be a major case coming before the Supreme Court in March. We're all hoping he does well. That was a Republican appointee, right? Mm-hmm. Several, several. Um, Sandra Day O'Connor was was appointed by uh, President Reagan. She ended up being, uh, really disappointing on these issues. So, so it's time it's time to hold Republican feet to the fire when it comes to pro life issues. They they shouldn't be able to just take us for granted year in and year out on this stuff.
0: Now, uh, you know, you do bring up a very touchy area and i think we're going to get to that a little bit more after the break but before we get there i I just really appreciate gk chesterton's uh perspective on politics he says that the the ones that the people ought to have lead them are too busy to take the jobs but the politician is waiting for it he's the pestilence of modern times we ought to keep politics as local as possible we're going to continue this conversation right after the break Join the conversation over at Facebook.com slash Step Outside the Walls. And on Twitter, the handle's at Outside the Walls. I'm sure you have something to say. There's much more to come in our conversation with Charlie Camosi, Associate Professor of Theological and Social Ethics at Fordham University. We'll be right back after this break. You're listening to Outside the Walls. Welcome back to Outside the Walls. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam. Thanks for sticking through the break. We're talking today about the topic of abortion, talking with Charlie Camosi, who is an associate professor of theological and social ethics with a specialization in bioethics at Fordham University. Glad to have him on today. Uh, Lots more to talk about. Charlie, thanks for being on the show.
1: Timothy, it's great to talk to you.
0: All right. So you brought up something touchy, right? You talked about uh, well, maybe it's time to start uh, backing away and removing support from the Republican Party because of uh, inaction. Now, I've I've got a lot of friends who are staunchly Republican and maybe a little bit further right than I generally would be. Although I I still think of myself as a conservative. Uh, I have uh, friends and family members who tell me that I'm not, uh, but. Uh, I can hear their objection now, uh, and it's that of the disciples. You know, to whom shall we go? Right. So yeah. it, yes, the Republicans are certainly not doing much. They're they're putting up show votes. They're not. But how can uh, I vote? I'm hearing them say for someone who has no qualms whatsoever with this. And and then if I don't vote for them, who and I vote for a third party who I know won't win. Am I culpable for that? And so now we've opened up a big can right in the middle of my show. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> I I can imagine the phone calls I'm going to receive. So talk a little bit about uh, our, our way forward. This is the big push behind your book is not so much, hey, you know, this hasn't worked for us. It's not just pointing out the problem. You've got a way forward, uh, which of course is going to involve uh, some localism, which we've talked about here recently, about getting involved in our local community and then pushing that up through the ranks to the federal, but what is a Christian to do? Uh, what is a pro life person to do? Because if they vote for the Republicans, nothing gets done. If they vote for the Democrats and we're talking at a federal level here, uh, then because at the state level, we have seen a number of things get pushed through depending on your state. But if you vote for the Democrats, then, then you have, uh, In some cases, unrestrained movement and rolling back of some of those things they've seen in the state. So, what's a person to do uh, to help move the discussion forward, to elevate it locally and federally?
1: Well, our first um, role, I think, as disciples is our local community. So, I think, um, I, I absolutely think federal politics is very important. That's not to downplay that. But I think we'd all agree that our first, uh, you know, our first, our first priority is for our neighbors. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so what are we doing in our parishes and churches and local communities? Do, do pro-life ministries, for instance, have, uh, shelters for women in difficult circumstances? Are we in our homes willing to bring in women in difficult circumstances? Are we willing to, to not, to, to break this sort of American consumerist fortress, my home is my castle mentality and, and welcome people, uh, into our parishes and homes who, who need help? Uh, I think that those are the kinds of things we should focus on first. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and, and and those are the least among us. Those, that's how Christ comes through us today. Um, when it comes to the federal level, I, I would say that we, we need to do two things. We need to look to, to the past to look to the future. So what what were things like after Roe went down in the 70s? It wasn't clear that the Republicans were the pro-life party and and the Democrats were the pro-choice party. It was something that developed over time. And it was a historical accident, actually. Ronald Reagan, who became a pro-life hero, actually signed legislation as governor of California, basically giving California uh, abortion on demand in that state, And, and and then turned around, or at least said he turned around, to become a pro-life uh, pro-life president, and Jimmy Carter was actually really complicated on abortion. He was gender, sort of pro-choice, but didn't like abortion, wanted it restricted. Um, but then in the '80s, we had uh, you know the coalition of the you know the uh, the moral majority and Jerry Falwell and the Southern Strategy, and Republicans became the pro-life party, and, and feminists went to the Democrat party. But even well into the '80s, there were so many pro-life Democrats. Now there are virtually none. Right. And uh, and so let's look at that past to say that there could there was a time where things were different and they could be different again. I I point to changing demographics in the book. We have um, Latinos and Latinas becoming just an explosive political force in this country. They're not at all uh, sort of you know pro-choice. They're they're Latinos are are genuinely pro-life compared to pro-choice if you have to use that language. But right. they're definitely not they're definitely not Republicans, right? So. So how are we going to get, how are we going to get pro, generally pro-life Latinos and Latinas on, on board with what we're doing if we're so attached to the Republican Party? It's going to be very difficult. And then finally, uh, you know, shifting demographics, millennials, young people, half of them don't identify as either Republican or Democrat. They're sort of fed up with the whole thing. I, I'm, I'm. If you can't tell already, I'm fed up with the whole thing. Uh, uh, why can't we reimagine with with Latinos and millennials a new way of organizing ourselves? There's no reason, especially given that this 2016 election cycle, which is unbelievably screwed up when it comes to this kind of thing, we're having a, an an independent socialist who might beat Hillary Clinton, and we have I don't know what to call Donald Trump, but he he might actually be the the Republican nominee. This is like a completely a complete implosion of, our, of what the common wisdom has been. Maybe it's a moment to try to rethink what we're doing on the national level.
0: You know, I, I was just having a conversation with uh, a friend of mine today on this very topic of you have the people who could be considered the extreme of their, uh, their party. So you've got the, uh, the far right and the far left. And somehow in this election cycle, there are people who have gone further than them to make them look as though they're moderates. So here you have Trump making Cruz look like a moderate, you have Sanders making Hillary look like a moderate, and, and I, I'm sitting here in the middle, which uh, according to all the political tests out there, that's where I fall, and and I'm just dumbfounded by the whole thing.
1: Yeah, and, and it's probably even a this that we, we imagine this along a linear spectrum, right, right, left, and middle, it's probably just not a good image to have in our head of where people are at. On, on certain issues, you know, I'm conservative. On certain issues, I'm liberal. I'm or right, I didn't even necessarily like to use those terms. I have this position on this issue, this uh, this position on this other issue. Right. Where, does, where, where, do the, where do the Catholic popes fit in on the American spectrum? Nowhere. They don't fit anywhere. Right. They're not certainly not conservatives. They're certainly not liberals. Um, Jesus, of course, would fit nowhere on the spectrum. So maybe we ought to just jettison the spectrum and just deal with issue by issue not put everyone in categories and boxes, which make them easier to dismiss.
0: Right. Of course, that's one of the, uh, the phrases... Uh, from philosophy, when you label me, you negate me, right? As soon as you can yeah. put me in a box, you can say, oh, well, that position is no longer important. But let's, let's get back to this issue for a moment, because you are not a politician. You are an ethicist. Uh, and perhaps it's time to begin looking at this issue from a philosophical point of view. Uh, it seems like philosophy is a lost art uh, outside of academia. And yet everyone has a philosophy. They just don't necessarily know what it is. Uh, or or how who else, in that uh, philosophical history held and espoused those same positions? But how do we take now this issue that has become so entrenched in the political realm and separate it from the p- political realm to begin to have a rational conversation with the conversation's own merits completely removed from politics well
1: i I think that's where. When we say we're disciples and and, and our local um, our local communities come first, I think that's the first move we need to make in order to do that. So too often, when I get into a discussion with people on these issues, and we start first at the level of morality, ethics, philosophy, uh, people jump immediately to what the law should be, or like you know how this will work politically, right? And and we and we don't. You know, we don't even go, we don't even spend the time we need to sort of work through the really complicated issues with regard to ethics and morality. So maybe that's what we need to, to focus on more is instead of just jumping to, well, who does that mean I should vote for? Or what should the law be? We spend a lot of time taking our time do, diving into the arguments and the evidence. Um, And it's not a people who think, I mean, what I tell my bioethics students, I say, if you leave this semester thinking these issues are easy, that there's an obvious answer, I will have not done my job this semester. Mm -hmm. I have a very strong opinion about these issues, but that's because I spent a lot of time thinking about them. Right. And I uh, and I know how to respond to people who think differently. Unfortunately, most people on multiple sides of abortion have done very little time thinking about why somebody who thinks differently than them might come to the conclusions that they do. And that leads to our polarized us versus them abortion wars. When you spend time thinking about why somebody is pro-choice, you become, you, you become first of all, um, totally convinced that they, you understand why they have their position. They're not evil or bad. Uh, But then you also become that much better uh, an advocate against their position because you can actually respond to what they think. And and in our polarized situation right now, we just don't do that.
0: You know, I'm going to mess up the attribution. I don't know who said this, but uh, an author said not not too distant past. He said the problem isn't that Johnny doesn't know uh, how to read, speaking of school, or even that Johnny doesn't know how to think. But the problem is that Johnny confuses feeling with thinking. And I think that that's a problem we have. We don't think philosophically about things. Rather, we have our gut responses and somehow put together a framework around that, rather than taking the time with the issue and, and thinking through the, the whole gamut of possibilities.
1: Yeah. And and at bottom, when it comes to first principles, I, I do think all of us, including our secular friends, are... Are claimed by a gut reaction, a faith reaction, a, an intuition, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, but 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 beyond those very basic first principles, we have to be committed to argument and evidence, and 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 taking the opposing view seriously, and 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 being being willing to be genuinely challenged by our, by our opponents, and challenging them right back, and doing it in the spirit of love and charity that Christians are called in every in every situation we find ourselves. Uh, unfortunately, I think you're right. Like for most people, that sort of emotional reaction is all that, that, is, that, that is operative. And then it just becomes an attempt to sort of impose our will onto the other without really taking the philosophical uh, approach seriously.
0: Well, join this conversation over at Facebook.com slash Step Outside the Walls. On Twitter, the handle's at Outside the Walls. There's more to come. You're listening to Outside the Walls. Welcome back to Outside the Walls. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam. Thanks for sticking through the break. If you've missed any part of this discussion, any part at all, you can go and listen to it on our archives over at OutsideTheWalls.com. If you you felt that maybe someone you know really would benefit from this uh, this show, this specific episode, go ahead and send them over to those archives, OutsideTheWalls.com. Of course, it'll be up in uh, within a couple of days after the show's up, and they can listen to it in its entirety, as well as all of the other shows we've ever done, including one previous with today's guest, Charlie Camosi, who is the Associate Professor of Theological and Social Ethics with a... Uh, Aside with a specialization in bioethics, Charlie, thanks for being on the show today. Hi, Timothy. So yesterday, of course, we are talking about abortion today. Um, it's yesterday was the anniversary of the Roe versus Wade, Doe versus Bolton decisions of the Supreme Court, which legalized abortion as the law of the land. And yesterday, you were in uh, Washington D.C. for the National March for Life. Uh, this was not your first year, but tell us a little bit about the environment there for those who have never been?
1: Well, it's, it's an electric, uh, electric, uh, group of people. It's an electric event. It's always something I find energizing. Uh, this has been said many times in the coverage, but I think it's worth repeating. It's an unbelievably young event. (laughs) In (laughs) fact, as I get older, I'm 40 years old. Uh, I, I feel increasingly old when I go because of the, (laughs) of the, of the, of the number of young people that are there. And it's incredible. Whatever, whatever grief that gives me, it's replaced by joy when I think about the future yeah. of the of the pro life movement. Um, it's also quite diverse uh, from a racial perspective, from a confessional perspective. Mm. I have to say, I do, even though I'm a theologian, I do get a little nervous about how much religious Im- imagery there is at the event. It allows our opponents to say that this is. This is a religious thing that shouldn't be imposed onto other people. Right, uh, but the group, but the groups that are there, that like, there's a great group called Secular Pro Life, which is run by an atheist and a lot of people that aren't Christians who attend. Um, uh, and I'm always energized by those people as well. So it's a really, really diverse and wonderful event.
0: Excellent. So uh, here we are. Each year we go and we demonstrate. And, of course, you've got that there in Washington, D.C. On the, on the West Coast, you've got the, the San Francisco Walk for Life. And then there's lots of regional events. Back when I was in Tulsa, they had the Tulsa March for Life, and I'm sure that there are many others all across uh, these United States dotting uh, our, our cities and our states. But uh, something I've always been struck by is the number of people who will go out to an event like that, or you know, who will go out and on those protest Planned Parenthood days, and the number of people uh, who never volunteer, who never go out to a crisis pregnancy center or or a pregnancy resource center, as they're often called now, uh, who never participating in, in uh, helping provide material comfort and aid to those who are in in that kind of a place, how do we move our pro-life culture uh, away from thinking that visual protest is enough? It's one thing to go from slacktivism and say, quit doing the hashtags and actually show up, because a public thing like the March for Life is important. It's important to have the numbers uh, visually in front of everyone. It's harder to ignore. But how do we get the people who are part of that now to go the next step, And not just protest, but then to be proactive in bringing about change.
1: Well, I think one of the criticisms that is often directed at the pro-life movement, and it's deserved, unfortunately, in my opinion, is that, well, you guys can't possibly think that there are a million babies being killed every year. Because if you did think that, you would be out riding in the streets every day protesting this. Imagine there were a million four-year-olds being killed every year. The most vulnerable and helpless four-year-old, uh, we would we would have riots in the streets, right? We would have people, uh, you know, just wouldn't wouldn't rest until there was something done about this. And uh, maybe it's because there's been a you know it's, there's been a sort of forty years of frustration that that uh, that has led to this. But we 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 often do get the slacktivism or at best, you know, holding up the sign at once a year at the March for Life. But but if you really do think that. There are a million, a million of the most vulnerable being killed, often because they are inconvenient. Um, Mm -hmm. Then, then how can you, how can you not, (laughs) how can you not do, do more, do more than, than, than what you just mentioned?
0: But and I think one of the things here uh, that I've seen, uh, used to be the director of Respect Life for a diocese, uh, was that people would see, maybe they'd see that the children, uh, and they would get angry. They would see that a million children were being uh, killed each year, and they would then immediately put that on the mother and become calloused towards the mother rather than realizing that in most cases, or, or at least in, in a large portion of the cases, uh, the mother is not the primary decider. You know, we, we've been told uh, that it's a woman's body, it's a woman's choice, and yet so often a woman is pressured into that. And, and so— yeah, but- I think it's important, and you've got the hashtag, choose both, right? Choose both the mother and the child and provide material support to the mother uh, as a way for her to choose life for her child.
1: Yeah, I I spend some time in the book exploring a a really underexplored concept called pro-life feminism. Mm -hmm. And I uh, I love the hashtag also pro-woman, pro-life. I I really think we need to really hammer this home in our public discussion of abortion as pro-lifers. Uh, one of the things I put on the book is that it was uh, the Playboy Foundation which uh, which funded the lower court cases which led to Roe versus Wade. It uh, was it was Hugh Hefner that said I was the first feminist. I was pushing this from the beginning. It's men who who have really really pushed uh, abortion rights from its inception. And it was it was the suffragettes. It was the first feminists who were really against abortion. Who thought it was a tool of oppression. On the part of men, it was a sign that we failed women and weren't willing to support women. And surprise, surprise, since Roe versus Wade, have we had pushes for equal pay for equal work for women? Have we had support for uh, women for child care? Have we had pushes for family leave? No, we've had none of these things. Mm-hmm. The answer the answer is more abortion, more abortion choice instead of actually supporting women. Is this actually a choice? Does anybody believe that women who are in these situations without the support of their communities and their government actually have a genuine choice to make, even if, it, if they're not being technically forced into it? Right. In, in, in Catholic social teaching, we call it social sin, structural sin they're being pushed towards this choice by the social structures we've set up. This.
0: Yeah. Well, you've left us with some great questions, Charlie. Outside the Walls is a co-production of St. Michael Radio and Breadbox Media, heard around the world on terrestrial radio, live streaming, and podcast. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace.